This is the wartime broadcasting service. This country has been attacked with nuclear weapons. Communications have been severely disrupted and the number of casualties and the extent of the damage are not yet known. We shall bring you further information as soon as possible. Meanwhile, stay tuned to this wavelength, stay calm, and stay in your own house. Remember, there's nothing to be gained by trying to get away. By leaving your homes, you could be exposing yourselves to greater danger. If you leave, you may find yourselves without food, without water, without accommodation, and without protection. We shall be on the air every hour on the hour. Stay tuned to this wavelength, but switch your radios off now to save your batteries. That is the end of this broadcast. Welcome to The Atomic Hobo. This is a special episode. I have a guest this week, the filmmaker Dan Vernon, who's made a documentary for the BBC called A British Guide to the End of the World. You can probably tell from that title, can't you, that I'm hugely excited about this film, as it deals, of course, with my favourite topic, how we prepared for nuclear war. Although Dan's film brings another element into it, as well as looking at the usual paraphernalia of sirens and war games and protect and survive and bunkers and barbed wire, he also brings Britain's atomic veterans into the film, Men who were sent to a tiny island in the Pacific Ocean to prepare for and watch and endure the testing of Britain's hydrogen bombs. The film will be broadcast on BBC4 tomorrow, that's Monday the 4th of November at 9pm. But until then, Dan has spoken to me about the film and allowed me to share some clips from it, many of which are sent to haunting eerie music which perfectly fits this grim subject. Yet, we all know that it's not all grim. Regular listeners to this podcast will know there is a certain dark humour in how Britain prepared for nuclear war, and Dan's film relishes those weird, darkly comic moments, some of which I'm privileged to share with you here. My favourite from the film has to be Deccio on his wobbling bike. Stay tuned to find out more about that, about the horrors and weird humour of a British guide to the end of the world. I was 19 when we were put on a boat. Christmas Island, here we come. Because, you know, in those days, you just did as you were told, didn't you? You were told you'd go and you went. Didn't even know where it was or why we were going there. Christmas Island itself is as near as makes no difference on the equator. And location is fairly easy to understand, roughly in the middle of the Pacific. It's right in the middle of nowhere. Took us four weeks to get there. (laughs) The holiday cruise that people pay a fortune for today. And so I asked Dan to begin by telling us what happened when those young men were put on the ship and sent off to the Pacific. It's a Christmas island, which is in the South Pacific, which is sort of in the middle of nowhere, is what one of the men says, actually. They didn't really know where they were going, because it was all top secret. And uh, a lot of them were conscripts anyway. 
So they were sort of engineers and whatnot. They weren't really soldiers, you know, most of them. They were there to sort of, you know, build roads, build runways for the planes that would take the bombs. And they were builders and they were just kind of regular guys, conscripts in the British Army. And anyway, they ended up on this island. And it was only when they got there that some of them told me they had to sign the Official Secrets Act. And they were told what they were doing there. Because before that, they had travelled a long way, obviously, from places like Newcastle and whatnot. And they they had stopped off. Some of them had stopped off in planes, changed planes in New York. Some of them stopped in Hawaii. And, you know, it was kind of an adventure for most of them. But they had no idea where they were going until they got there. And then it was a bit of a shock. The island itself was full of seabirds. They were absolutely amazing. The giant frigate birds. I used to lay on my back sometimes and watch them soar into the clouds. There was guillemots, divers, arctic terns, gannets. There was all manner of birds, thousands of them. I mean, to us, it was an adventure. You know, to go abroad was unbelievable, you know. Never happened. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, we'd never been anywhere. I've come from Lancashire. The only place I'd ever been was Blackpool. It was everything you could have, have dreamed of, but nobody knew anything at all about why we were there. What was the purpose behind this little British Army unit in the middle of a gigantic ocean? It was our tropical paradise. But uh, within a short period of time, we were aware that our presence on the island brought a very dark shadow. When, I mean, when they got there, the first thing they did is kind of tear up the island with bulldozers and whatnot and concrete over it to create landing strips for the, the planes, build bunkers, which they we didn't go in, which is nice, isn't it? They, they were set building the bunkers for the scientists and some of the hierarchy. And um, the men themselves, once all this infrastructure had been built, were then put on the edge of the island um, most of them with no protective clothing at all. And um, they were kind of ordered through tannoys systems that were put around the place. So most of the time, those tannoys were playing hits of the day, 1957, and Hawaiian music. And then you'd have this voice coming over saying, right, men, sorry, about face, hands over the eyes, and they were instructed to put their head between their knees and um, were given a countdown. And then they felt the blast behind them. And, and when I heard, I mean, I'd heard, I'd read about this story, but when you actually hear it from the men themselves, it's, it puts you right there. You know, they, they haven't forgotten a second of that moment. The flash seems to come through the back of your head. You could see the bones in your fingers through your closed eyes. Bearing in mind the light was not in front of you, it was behind you. Yeah, you can see all your bones lit up, brilliant white, you know. 
Yeah, you could see every every joint. And the heat was already coming through your body. It was that hot. I felt that it wouldn't take much more for me to combust. It's so hard to explain because it, it's so unnatural. In a way, their story became... It wasn't the beginning of the film, but it's something I thought was really important to tell because all this preparation for nuclear war is, is fascinating and disturbing and everything else. But to actually speak to people who essentially experienced that, the bomb, with no preparation, really, was quite, you know, quite, quite an important story to tell, I think, because they suffer the consequences. The hot ball of the explosion was black and red and boiling, churning and rising and bursting out. Greys, blacks, greens, oranges, reds, all the colours you can imagine, but they weren't in what I would consider a pretty formation. It was an angry, evil-looking thing. We saw what looked like Catherine wheels spiralling. And they actually turned out there'd be birds on fire. Hundreds of them burning. A lot of them were still alive and blind. And of course, your film goes on to interview some of these veterans and talk about the, the legacy of being so close to Britain's nuclear bombs. And of course, some of them have suffered terribly with cancers and their, their children have suffered too. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, they all, I mean, the men I spoke to uh, are still suffering. Um, a lot of them, when they came back, I mean, there's quite a lot of men, I'm told, that died pretty soon after. And the ones that didn't, various things started going wrong a lot of them lost their teeth within you know weeks of coming back and then lots of rashes started appearing on their skin and i think what one of the problems for them to try and get justice and get recognition is because radiation seems to be it disguises itself differently with each person um you know, it sort of, it creates different cancers for different people. From what I gather, I'm, I'm no expert, but from what I've been hearing from people. And, you know, there'd be some people who have it less than others. Some people have it greatly more. But then there's some people whose offspring have it even worse than them. And that, that was the most crushing thing I heard, I think, was the amount of veterans whose bloodline has just been poisoned by the radiation. It was worse than negligence. They knew full well what they were doing. They sent us to that island to suffer the effects. So we were the guinea pigs. Nobody understands our story. Even in our own country, people haven't a clue as to what we did. And now with some guilty relief perhaps, we can move on to something, as I promised earlier, with a bit of strange comedy value. 
Listeners to this podcast will know about the weird British practice of placing nuclear warning sirens in pubs, schools, churches, doctor surgeries in rural areas. It might sound odd, but there was some logic behind this. These small communities would of course be out of earshot of the big sirens in towns and cities. To avoid having to hook every little hamlet into the siren network, there was a scheme whereby local people who were known and respected in the village would be given a small, hand-cranked siren of their own. And they'd grab this and run out into the street when the time came and wind it up, alerting their neighbours that nuclear war was coming. How did they know when to sound that alarm? Well, they'd be given a small grey box which would be attached to the wall in the pub, for example, and it would quietly bleep. If that bleeping ever stopped and broke out into a harsh warbling note, then that was the signal. That meant the pub landlord had to grab his siren and run outside to start winding it up and sound the alarm. The film features a pub landlord called Deccio, who had such a device fitted behind his bar. Let's listen to a clip and see how that scheme would have worked out in practice. If you happen to be having a quiet drink in the bull's head at Moniash when the Russians decide to attack, then you can relax in the knowledge that you're at the centre of one of Britain's nuclear defence systems. And this is the reason Derbyshire police have installed here in the pub an early warning system which is operated by landlord Decio Tatani. Decio, have you got any idea, though, what that thing is supposed to do? Well, it's supposed to... The police is supposed to let me know that the Russia are coming. Then I got about 50 minutes to warn the village. But what are the instructions you've been given about this thing? Well, very little. Here it says, warning, red air attack, warning. Stand by for verbal message. But most of the time you've got the machine turned off. What use is that? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, (laughs) uh, like I say, I haven't got enough information to... You know, to to handle it properly. Well, if you think that sounds crazy, then listen to this. They haven't yet sent Decio his warning siren. This is how he warns the rest of the villages of Moniash. The Russia are coming. 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 Yes, that's Decio on his bike, wobbling along the cobbled lanes and streets of the village, shouting, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. That's how some villages in Britain would have been given their four-minute warning. I asked Dan for some more info about poor Decio. Do, do you know, was Decio given a choice? Did he volunteer to host one of these machines? or was I it doubt something... it. Yeah, and no, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I spoke to one of the hardest um, people to find and to, 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 to interview was, um, was a planner, emergency planner. Mm. Because I think, I think some of them still believed, uh, you know, still under the Secrets Act. So, and also a lot of the things they did plan are still in place. You know, there's not much else you can really do. Um, but I did speak to one planner and it seemed to be that, you know, there'd be areas that were selected to have these things. So I think you were 
you received a letter and you said you know you've been selected to have one of these sort of things rolled out into your community and then they would actively go down to the villages and they would look for people who might make good you know community leaders come the apocalypse and um and they he said they would often look you know for some of those old retired colonels from the second world war but the problem with them is they would sometimes get a bit too enthusiastic Yes. and start planning you know like a little mini militia because of course you're going to get floods of people coming from the city so they were thinking about putting barbed wire around their communities and i think you've talked about it in one of your podcasts i've heard that it would have been a little mini civil war wouldn't it because you'd have these little these little kingdoms in the event of the central government the regions and the counties all being reduced to rubble the dawn of any new civilization in the area of Milland will be the rising sun, where Major General John Frost will coordinate parish efforts to house and feed survivors. One of the general's worries is what to do if people ignore the government's advice and persist in fleeing to the country. Patrols will look out for such refugees. If we were suddenly faced with a whole lot of people who came out from the built-up areas looking for shelter and food, then we couldn't compete. And we'd have to then possibly, if we got no help from elsewhere, look around to see what we could do. Of course, we were dealing with people who still had memories of the Second World War and the odd Dad's Army-type characters who had uh, organised the community and all that went with that. You have, I think, been criticised by some people for perhaps being a little too keen. Is that, is that fair criticism? Most unfair. We haven't, there's no, no comparison at all. We haven't tried to form a home guard or anything of the sort. All we've done is to, with the, um, with the equipment, etc., that we have available, is to try to think what might happen and how we can best use what we've got to, to help life in the valley to go on and use we did try and rein them in, obviously, for their enthusiastic plans, particularly to try and persuade them that, no, they couldn't put barbed wire around their village to keep other people out, that sort of thing. It was quite a big issue in America, because, of course, over there, they're armed, and I know that in lots of communities outside the big cities, um, you know, Los Angeles, etc. The small rural communities outside there, you know, thought we're going to be submerged by all the refugees from LA and we're not having it. We're going to be here with our guns to keep them <laughs> at bay. It's horrifying. It is really scary. Yeah. So the British equivalent was uh, for villages to try to throw up some barbed wire to keep to keep the baddies out. Yeah, yeah. Dust off the muskets and uh Yeah, no, it would have been an interesting time. But it's funny that um what I what I found in in a lot of these um, people I've been speaking to, is the, the the pub, the local pub, seems to be the hub for a lot of them. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of references to pubs, probably because it was, you know, in a sense, in essence, uh, this sort of community hall. Yes. Where probably more people would have congregated. So um, the pub became quite a focus of, for, for these meetings, for emergency planning in, in places. Definitely a place where the WB400s would be and possibly a place, you know, a refuge as well, where people would gather who, yes. who are wandering around the streets looking for food or drink or whatever. So, 
Uh, I wonder if it happened these days, if we'd find the same kind of comfort in a local weather spoons. <laughs> Maybe not on the same nice atmosphere as these old rural pubs. But yeah, the pub does pop up quite a lot. You're, you're, you're right. Um, now, um, when you said you'd spoken to planners, Dan, but some of them were quite tight-lipped. Um, obviously, your film has lots of archive footage of these planners, of, often just guys in, in local councils, you know, perfectly ordinary people um, hosting, like... Um, war games and practices mm. for the end of the world you know what will happen when the bomb goes off how will we clear up the bodies clear the rubble from the streets what's your opinion of these plans do you think they would have worked or was it all just a big charade to try and keep anxiety at bay i think i think it's a combination i think i mean the planner i spoke to said the kind of things that you'd sort of almost expect someone to say who's who's had time to reflect on it and and, and was thinking at the time that it, you know, there's a, there's a real level of absurdity to it all. But at the same time, there are some things which, you know, instill a bit of hope in the community. Mm-hmm. I can see that being, you know, a good reason to do quite a lot of it because without doing anything, people are going to panic. I mean, I'm talking from the perspective of government bodies, you know, you don't want people yeah. leaving the house, running around, screaming and you know, yes. ruining the joint. But um, I think, you know, I mean, he said that we knew at the time that a lot of the plans that we were making wouldn't be effective. But I guess just in terms of bringing a community together, I can see the point of that. It's a point of, you know, looking after your neighbours and stuff. Those are the nice sides of what they were doing. Um, what they didn't talk about is, you know, the bunkers where average folk wouldn't be invited that actually you know a lot of the people were quite expendable so I mean there's that great moment I didn't I wanted to include it in the film but um it didn't make it but there do you remember the um when Jeremy Paxman is interviewing I think it's a county controller and he's I think he's an accountant by day over the weekend he's you know he's basically playing war games and um kind of relished the idea and I think Paxman that's what scared him was the fact that some of these guys who were going to be in charge sort of were relishing the fact of having this kind of power and exercising it. Oh, yes, and, yeah. And that, that's that's quite frightening. I know that that panorama, um, the Paxman interview, is absolutely brilliant. One of the things which just breaks my heart in it is the scene where uh, he's with the family who are building the inner core or refuge in their house. You know, they're, they're practising what it would be like, so they've oh, propped yeah, the yeah. doors against the wall. But the father insists they've got to bring the dog in with them. And Jeremy Paxman's, you know, being very sneering and disdainful. You know, you can't take the dog in here. But the father says, well, my daughter loves the dog. We've got to bring the dog in with us. And it's just so sad because, you know, what hope is there for any of them? Um, the poor dog, of course, that just breaks my heart. Um, anything to do with pets. <laughs> yeah, but, um, That can't. just shows how hopeless it all is, yeah. You can't it's leave your so dog bad. outside your refuge. I mean, he'd, he'd find a way in anyway, let's face it, if it's, if it's a load of cushions against some doors, the dog's pretty resourceful. It's going to get in there. I mean, I included that clip of them, of the dog going in, because I like that human touch. I mean, that's what I was looking for with the archive, is I didn't want to make a film that was another film about the kind of geopolitics of the time. I was really interested in making, a, you know, telling that story through the eyes of fairly ordinary people who were connected and who weren't given all the information so that they're, they're they're not far away from you know the rest of us. They happen to be working for the government, you know, whether it's as you know conscript on the island or whether it's 
you know, member of the ROC or whatever, but they, they weren't given all the information either. They just got that, that little slice of it. Their job was to do this. And also they were very much expendable because they were all kind of suicide missions in a way. You know, if you were in that bunker, the ROC bunker, you had two weeks supply, I think, and then that was it. You're done. Yeah, then you left. You either, you know, lift the hatch and climb out, and if you can, make your way home, then do it. But otherwise, you're on your own. Yeah, um, yeah. So your film includes um, footage from, I, I believe, the early 80s of a young woman who was looking for a hobby, and she ended up joining the ROC as a hobby. I didn't really realise how dangerous a possible nuclear war would be. And then things came on the news. There'd be things happening in the world, and you thought... This could end up nasty. I left school when I was 17 and started working. I was working in the accounts department of a large department store in Leeds. And I thought it would be a good idea to join a large youth club that had plenty of activities. And a girl at work said, why don't you come to the ROC with me? I'd never heard of the ROC. So what is it? Royal Observer Corps. So what do you do? She said, no, we plot nuclear bombs and the path of the radiation fallout from them. It's ever so good. So I did, I joined. Because there were obviously quite a few women in the ROC. We often imagine it being very male-dominated, but of course there were lots of women in the ROC. Oh, they really were. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it was um, it was one thing. I, re I really, you know, I, I I struggled actually to to find female voices in this, and I obviously really wanted it. To, but it was, you know, so male-dominated um, in terms of the ranks and you know, sexism of the day just didn't allow women into those roles, really. But the ROC was one area where women did rise to the ranks and a lot of them were in charge and um, and was one of them. And, and in the film, you know, went to the highest sort of top level. Calf. I think she was um, asked the question, which obviously is unfair, but she was asked, you know, what would you do? Would you leave your children if, if the moment arrived, if you had to dash to the bunker? And of course, I assume they didn't ask that of any of their blokes, but... Um, again, they asked, would you be able to leave your children? And she said, yes, because I would be helping them by doing that. Yeah. There's no point just, you know, hunkering under the kitchen table. By serving with the ROC, she would be doing her bit and arguably making things safer for, for her kids. Because, of course, the ROC, on a local basis, they're in charge of, you know, plotting where the bombs have dropped, where the radiation is going. And so by doing that, she's arguably helping get her kids out of the path of radiation. I had two children, two boys. We were always faced with this question, if there was uh, a nuclear war, you were expected to uh, go in full time if there was an emergency. And that meant leaving your family behind. And you had to think about that, would you really do it? But I was prepared to leave my children. And hoping that there was no explosion near them because you'd want your family to be. I know it sounds awful, you'd want your family to go to be wiped out rather than 
die slowly of radiation sickness. It will be hard to leave your children, but if everybody decided they weren't going to leave the families, then there would have been no Royal Observer Corps there to protect anybody. And it was, you know, it was a difficult question um, for her to answer. But, you know, mm. she, she, re yeah, she really did believe, you know, what you, what you just said, that actually the best chance her kids would have had would have been if she could have been there helping to plot where they're aged. But I mean, what a decision to make on that day. How many people would have gone to work? I don't know. Yes, that's the question that lies at the bottom, of course, of Which all is. this nuclear war planning. Would people have turned up, whether it's the observers in the ROC or whether it's the council workers or whether it's the doctors and nurses at the at the hospitals, those which are still standing? Yeah. Are people going to actually turn up for work? I think, yeah, I would have called in sick, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard enough to drag yourself out of bed to go to work some mornings, never mind, after a nuclear war. <laughs> But that's something that always occurs to me, especially doctors and nurses, especially. Obviously, we need them desperately after a uh, nuclear yeah. war. But is a doctor or nurse going to abandon their own family who may be sick and injured to go and look after someone else's family? But then we have to hope that doctors and nurses are guided by you know certain medical ethics and they would want to help the community. But I don't, they're only human, of course. Would they leave their own shelter, their own family to go and look after others? Yeah. No, I mean, it's that, it's that area, isn't it, that wasn't, I mean, couldn't either really be explored, no matter how many reconstructions you do. Um, you can you can plan practically, but planning psychological effects on yeah. people is, is near enough impossible. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days, and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. notorious clip there from Protect and Survive, of course, which brings me to our next topic. I'd asked Dan what were the most ludicrous or absurd things he encountered in the BBC's archives, and this raised a dilemma for him. He had to tread a fine line. If he brings in the true absurdity of nuclear war planning, will some viewers think it's just too comic, too silly, and that perhaps he's making it up? How do you balance the reality and the horror with the inherent absurdity of preparing for the end of the world? And yes, he did find some of Protect and Survive slightly absurd, such as the very primitive way in which Britain would alert the population that fallout was due to descend. I mean, it's even some of that Protect and Survive stuff is just so bonkers that you just wonder whether people would actually think that you'd made it up I mean I know you know people like you and your listeners will will know that film back to front they'll know the whole 52 minutes of, 
of it. But um, you know, the things like the if you hear three, I think it starts with radiation warning. You'd hear three flares, right? And then, but in some communities, you would hear three gongs, and that kind of stuff. Just I had it in for a bit, and yeah, and someone watched it and went, "That didn't happen." They didn't think that, did they? I didn't want too much of that where you might think that we'd actually scripted it, perhaps, because it's just so crazy. If the fallout warning sounds are heard, they will be like these. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, the film is on BBC4 on Monday evening at 9pm. And of course, don't worry, if you've missed it, you can catch it up on iPlayer. You can also find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain. If you follow me on social media, you'll see that I've uploaded some entertaining horror and strangeness that I found in a recent batch of archives I purchased from Surrey. So check my social media if you want to see how they prepared for nuclear war. But I'm sure I'll do a podcast episode on that soon. It was a huge archive. Uh, the cost of buying those archives was funded by my Patreon subscribers. I now have 90 people who are donating money each month to the podcast, funding it and my associated research work. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Let me give a special thanks to the following patrons. Dan Breen, Simon Robinson, Lissy D, Eric, Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegervald, Ian Mackay Dahl, Lainey Peterson, Andrew Skilson, Tony Newman, Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abelins, Messi Ventura, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Charlie Brown, Andrew Apostolos, Geert Kingwa, El Raper, Amanda Nellist, Ian Whittaker, Rob Johnson, Oliver Wiles, Andrew Russell, Julie Rose, Jonathan Fozard, Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Ed Freshwater, Rosie Jameson, Ian Elkin, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Wilnuff, Kevin Butcher, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone who's donated money. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please do share it so that we can get the word out about this excellent film. And thank you, of course, to Dan Vernon for speaking to me and sharing clips from his wonderful film. And I'll be back next Sunday with another podcast. Bye for now.